Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. All massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com forward slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Bodywork magazine, where Till and I are frequent contributors. For more, check out the ABMP podcast also, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen. So hi, Till. How's it going today? Really good, Whitney. How about yourself? Very well today. So uh, we've got some neurological things that we're going to try to take a deep dive into today, if I understand correctly. Neurological that have a lot of implications out into the body, of course, and for us as hands-on therapists. I wanted to right. uh, you pick your brain a little bit and think through this idea of the cortical homunculus. The part the of the brain. Yeah. Huh. The, the little man in the brain, homunculus means, uh, you know, man-like figure, Latin. It's the part, part of the brain that is primarily thought to uh, uh, represent, you could say, the body, both in terms of motor control and sensory information. And uh, it's, you know, most of our listeners probably are familiar with it once they see the picture. There's some 3D pictures around showing a distorted human form with really huge hands and face and lips and tongue, because those are the part of the brain, it turns out, that have much more uh, area dedicated to them. And so this little man, this little sculpture, is made in proportion to that and is uh, distorted in that sense. Yeah. So um, we're going to try to dive into some pieces of what the homunculus is, what it means, and I assume we'll try to touch base on some clinical applications and relevance for that as well. So um, maybe you can lead us a little bit more into like where did this come from and how did how did it come about? This is an interesting story, and that's what's uh, made me want to do this for an episode. There's a paper that came out. We'll put the references in the show notes. But the history of it is interesting. It was uh, Penfield, who in the 30s, Wilder Penfield, a neuroscientist, was using electrical probes on brain surgery patients to try to map out on the brain which parts of the brain were, were, say, dedicated to which parts of the body. So his method was pretty crude. People had to be awake for brain surgery so they could monitor their cognitive functioning. They just had local anesthesia. But he and his assistants would use little electric probes to touch parts of the brain, and then they'd ask the patient, so where do you feel this? Or they'd watch and see which part of the body twitched. And then they'd just start keeping these logs, which turned out to be pretty extensive over a lot of years, a couple hundred patients, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, just started to look for correlations like, oh, when we put touch that part of the brain on a bunch of people, they all felt it in their arm. So that's how this map came about through actual electrical stimulation directly on the brain surface to, and then reports from the patients on the table about where they felt it. So, so there's a, it seems to some 
a, a tremendous amount of complexity to this because when we think about what uh, what is necessary for the brain to govern both sensory information and motor information, this is one of the things that I think comes up in uh, sort of comparative physiology when we talk about the brain-to-body ratio size in various animals compared to, uh, you know, we often compare it to ourselves. And there are very few, and I don't remember specifically, but there's like two maybe animals that have a bigger brain-to-body ratio than we do. Um, dolphins? Very close in size, I believe. Dolphins, and I think it's one of the whales. Killer whales. Um, but I'm not positive about that. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, you know, it seems to be um, so much of this involved with both um, uh, motor skills and a lot of the, the sensory cortex processing of those kinds of, of uh, uh, things. And, and this is something where I think the homunculus is is a really interesting concept. Yeah. Somebody was, said something one day to make a comparison that uh, we're talking about, you know, how much brain power is used to do different things. And they said, uh, you know, which would you think to be a more complex um, cognitive skill, um, beating a world-class chess champion or walking across the floor? Uh, and initially, champion? you know, I think, well, sir, certainly beating a world-class chess champion is a lot more cognitively challenging. But depends on what you mean by beating, I suppose. Yeah, beating at chess. Yeah, yeah, at chess. Yeah, yeah gotcha. that's right. Uh, because you know, for example, we have been able to create uh, computer programs that can beat a world-class chess champion at chess. Yes. We've had a very difficult time creating artificial. Uh, motor activity in robots, for example, that can that's walk right. across the floor without falling down. That's and right. I think this is one of those things that emphasizes how incredibly complex that somatosensory motor cortex is uh, in processing yeah. this kind of information. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at the relative size of this representation of the homunculus and say, as you said, there's a lot of processing zone dedicated to the hands and mm -hmm. to the face. Yeah, and those are the huge in the mouth. Those are, those are the huge zones that require, you know, chess champion quality kind of processing just yeah. to function normally. Yeah. So here's something I have a question about. And I, I have to admit, I haven't really studied the homunculus enough to make that comparison. Note mm. clearly when you look at the sensory maps of the homunculus, the face, lips, tongue, you know, very yeah. large out of size proportion. Yeah. But when we talk about the motor capacities, yes. obviously, the hand uh, needs tremendous motor capacity because of the fine precision movements that the hand is is producing. Yes. Um, is there a similar type of, doesn't seem like there would need to be a similar type of motor expanse for the face, uh, lips, and tongue, although I guess maybe when you think of language and those kinds of things, there's a lot of specificity to, to the motor activity there as well. All right. That's a really interesting question. Does the mouth need as much area, brain area for motor as it does for sensory? Is that, is that what you're asking? Yeah, and I think we can uh, bypass the comments about people's mouths needing a lot of sensory and cognitive capacity. <laughs> they don't necessarily do that. Well, we're talking no, about I, the necessity of motor skills. Yeah, no, I like the question, uh, for, but yeah. this is the trap, right, let's say, that this yeah. map draws us into because we start to think about this picture that's been so common. It's called like the most popular and most reproduced figure in neuroscience mm -hmm. as being a map of the brain. And it's not, it's a map of these guys experiments back in the thirties, imperfectly recorded. And so yeah. some of the thing that surprised me is how inaccurate it is. But 
your question is, does the mouth say need as much motor? Well, apparently on their maps, at least the hand has a lot of both sensory and motor. And so does the mouth. They're both yeah. big. And there's some differences on their map between the sensory and motor homunculi, the differences. But it turns out, as I dig into the specifics of it, those are pretty darn inexact. And in fact, yeah. there's a lot of overlap. If you look on some neurology uh, uh, illustrations of the brain, you can find parts of the brain colored sensory cortex and another part covered motor cortex. Well, it turns out it ain't like that. There's a lot of overlap between those two regions. A lot of things that happen for sensory function uh, also involve the motor part of the cortex. So they got, or they got stimulus in both zones, you could say. Yeah. And one uh, of the things that, um, well, let me just say one more thing about that. Yeah. It turns out that those are linked a lot more by function than mm -hmm. by territory. Yeah. So that you find functional positionings within the brain, like you hand to mouth, you're feeding yourself a lot, or you do a lot of stuff with your hand and your face, that that's one reason that they're so close proximately in this map, and one reason they're so involved with each other as well. Yeah. Do you happen to know, and I have no idea about this, if some of the more modern uh, diagnostic studies, uh, maybe functional MRI and things like that, which can show parts of the brain lighting up during different activities or things have they yes. been able to confirm uh most of the accuracy of those maps of the uh, yes and no mm -hmm. it's it's uh no in that their models are much different these guys back in the 30s made a cartoon and said this kind of represents what we're doing and he Penfield, to his credit, never really put it forth. It was buried in his original paper in just one small little illustration. Mm -hmm. But people latched onto this little picture of a guy distorted in a weird way, and yeah. it's upside down on the brain, and a bunch of other things. And he kind of tried to back away from it, says, well, this was just kind of a rough sketch. But like yeah. I said, it's been so uh, used because it communicates so clearly to us, oh, there's parts of my brain that relate to my body, and they're not in proportion to my physical body. They're out of proportion. Yeah. So yeah, mm -hmm. the, the more recent studies with uh, fMRI and also transcutaneous sti magnetic stimulation and inhibition of the brain show a much more complex picture that doesn't make a very good cartoon. Yeah, they make they make a more complex diagram of interconnections more than territories mm -hmm. because that seems to be more significant as how things are connected up than actually where they map on the brain surface. And two, I would imagine there is also, when we talk about neuroplasticity and the capability of the brain to adapt, let's say after some type of injury or uh, impairment, we yeah. see a lot of instances where, you know, neurons and new synapses can sort of make connections uh, to places they weren't before. So perhaps this map is not quite as permanent as we might initially think, and it's got the no. capability for adaptation and evolution um, over yeah. time as well. I mean, the neuroplasticity people uh, 10 years ago, and still to this day, make a big deal of that. Mm -hmm. That it turns out there's some really interesting studies of violin players who have really big left-right differences in the amount of brain dedicated to their hands. Because you do a very different thing with your left hand playing a violin than you do with your right. And so the, the hand that you use a whole lot more has a much bigger representation in the brain than the one you don't. And then, uh -huh. so, so not only does it vary a lot between people and what they do with it, but then if you stop playing as a violinist, your brain uh, proportions revert to more of a standard size, closer to the average, pretty quickly. Within two weeks, there's a noticeable change in the amount of brain dedicated to your playing hand. 
And then resuming practicing in these experiments, the amount of brain uh, grew essentially or remapped into more areas of the brain to show to have a finer control and more of the brain dedicated to that hand again within another two weeks. So there seemed to be like in this study a two-week threshold between uh, use it or lose it. If you're not practicing a whole lot, you start to get rusty. You don't have as much brain dedicated to your hands. You go back to practice and you start getting a whole lot more brain dedicated to your hands. But there's a lag. There's a couple-week lag before that yeah. comes back to normal. But I mean, still, I would consider that fast changes if you're talking about, you know, different parts of the brain development uh, and the capability of doing that. But I mean, it makes absolute sense in terms of, you know, why we can sort of you know, not be so great at a motor skill that we used to be better at and then come back and, and eventually polish it back up and, and you know, rebuild it once again. So uh, yeah. fascinating, fascinating ideas there and, and some uh, obviously implications for um, soft tissue and, and hard tissue damage in the body where you're trying to compensate for uh, areas that are not able to function the way that they used to. Well, it ain't, there is a lot of compensation that happens, even in brain injuries that other parts of the brain take that over, which is one of the, the uh, you know criticisms of this map. It's not a one-to-one relationship. It's not like a little voodoo doll where exactly this place yeah. equals that place in the body. It's There's such yeah. complex interconnections that even when there's brain damage, other parts of the brain take over and do that job that we, in all, at least on their map, they assigned to say the hand or whatever. Yeah. So that just made me think of something. I'm curious to hear your opinion about this. When um, we were doing a podcast, you and I together, or a, a presentation for the ABMPC Summit recently, and we got a question about reflexology that came up. And uh, right. this is, a, this is an, a concept or a conceptual idea Yes. You take like foot reflexology where there's supposedly a map of organ systems based on certain parts of the foot. Yes. Uh, um, so with all this neural plasticity and capability of things moving around, um, it's curious how those kinds of systems would be able to formalize a consistently presenting map from each yes. individual that, that maps on a regular basis to those particular areas. Good point. Yeah, we're learning things change a lot according to function. There's lots of individual variation. And that the maps are never quite as simple as they look on paper. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, and the authors of that paper made this point, there's actually, you could argue it both ways. You could say that, yeah, maybe the foot does have a whole body map on it because the brain does. And then in uh, traditional Chinese medicine, the ear does. The whole body's mapped it on the ear. And they said even, well, why don't we take any part of the body? And I bet you could find some correlations, interconnections, and functional mappings onto its surface for the whole body. This is, why not the eyeball, say? Mm -hmm. So there is a kind of holism at work or a fractal reproduction of control and sensory things. It does seem to actually uh, have some plausibility down to those small scales. Now, whether that's literal truth or just an interesting mental exercise is uh, is an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah, and that you know that gets into a lot of those discussions of people with uh, amputations and things like that that still can feel missing digits and and those kinds of things. So, like clearly, there are some somatosensory maps oh, yeah. that remain intact. Oh yeah, uh, uh, for all kinds of things like that. In fact, uh, there's I'll put a reference again in the show notes because this is one that. Um, came to mind when we picked this topic. Smithsonian, story in the Smithsonian Magazine, 
uh, a few years ago. The headline, this woman was born with three fingers, but her brain knew all along what having five would feel like. So this is a story of a woman that, yeah, was born with three fingers, had a, uh, an auto accident where her uh, three-fingered hand was injured. And in the rehabilitation process and the pain she had afterwards, it came clear that she could feel five fingers. Huh. Now, did she have three fingers on both hands or well, she had five on the other hand as she well? She had five on the other hand, but three okay. on the hand that was injured. But it, yeah. again, a sensory, she had a sensory hand with five fingers. And then as the rehabilitation went on, that actually, that sensory hand developed and changed in size in her perceptive field, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it brings to lots of questions like, are we born, you could say, with a sensory map that's based on something other than our physical form? Is there some sort of sensory or motor map that's based in the brain, perhaps? Yeah, and brain. how is that potentially influenced sometimes, too, by all kinds of other perceptual things? I think you had put something in your show notes, and I was going to uh, allude to this, too, about uh, things like the mirror therapy, where you have, uh, or, or some of the other, um, you know, uh, visual distortion therapies that are trying to get people to uh, address pain mm-hmm. complaints by doing certain things to make their brain think they see something different than what's really happening there. It's, um, you know, seems like rubber hand illusion. Yeah. 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 The rubber hand, uh, trick and, and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, there was one that somebody described one time too, of, a um, a visual box of some kind that they were doing with, uh, an arthritis treatment where they got the person to put their hand inside this box where they could see their hand. And yeah. then, uh, the practitioner, grasped the end of their fingers and gently pulled on their fingers. But the visual representation was that their, their finger was really getting longer and longer and sort of stretching out. And, and they said it was incredibly good feeling for this person who had arthritis, that sensation of they're just taking all the pressure off those joints because it was getting pulled and stretched out. Of course, that wasn't really happening, but really, you know, the, term, the really revealing yeah. your bias toward physical reality, Whitney. Yeah. <laughs> you said the word really there. That's because, true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you could say that it was really happening in a perception. She really yeah. saw it. She really had the experience. But no, yeah. would, a, would a third uninvolved observer agree? Probably not. Yeah. But no, that does it does bring up all those questions of what is really, in quotes, happening. And if yeah. we change people's perception and change their experience, is that sufficient, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Is that enough? And so that's, uh, I got to say, that's, I'm of that persuasion. I'm of that uh, bias that says, yeah, if my clients are coming with a subjective complaint like pain, and I can influence their pain with that subjectively or whatever, good enough for me. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, in my way of thinking, this is a major map and major tool. This idea that there's a representation of the body that we're working with in the brain, not always even the physical body or the actual tissues that what, what one of my goals is to actually influence the representational and experienced aspect of the body. Yeah. So tell me about that when you're working of um, a way in which you might think about that being a goal of trying to, to sh- shape, mold, modify, yeah. or call maybe call awareness to even that, that representation. How, how do you kind of go about that, or, or what's what's your sort of strategy for for accomplishing that? Right. So let's say something like hand pain or wrist pain, or you know something that we might suspect being neurovascular compressions and carpal tunnel syndrome. To say something like that, uh, one approach is to say let's look at what might be mechanically compressing the neurovasculature, 
and go to mechanically change that compression. The other approach might say, okay, so let's look at how their representation in the brain has been impacted and has maladapted to that extra sensation that still might be coming from compression or overuse or whatever, but Mm -hmm. has resulted in an altered brain map that keeps going to pain and keeps going to disability or weakness or whatever it is. So right there, I have a different model or different therapeutic target from not just tissue to being brain as well. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the actual uh, procedure I might use would involve uh, the metaphor there is like a coloring book where I'm looking to find ways to recolor the person, the client's um, brain map with a different, more pleasing color than they've found so far. So touch is really good at producing pleasant sensation and pleasant experience and essentially, metaphorically, recoloring the brain map. So uh, in doing something like that, it would seem to me also that this might extend beyond just what you're doing with your manual manipulation of soft tissue and also include what you're saying to your clients, you know, pictures, visualizations, metaphors, et cetera. So how do you see that play into what what you're doing? I mean, we, like we said, I think on a recent one, we're experience architects. You know, we Uh don't... uh, Yeah, we don't just, we're not just tissue technicians. We're really creating a whole experience for our clients that involves like the room, the way I'm talking to them, the setup, all of the intake procedures, you know, all those things, the therapeutic alliance, of course, all these contextual factors that essentially prime the pump for them having a certain kind of experience that's satisfying and relieving of whatever symptom they're trying to address, whether it's stress or pain. Yeah. And so um, I think in many instances, something like this um, perceptual awareness or knowledge of, of the complexity of some of these, um, uh, maybe let's say just on the sensory level, a person comes in and complains of, of a certain type of pain sensation in one of these areas, which is richly um, innervated and richly represented in the homunculus. Uh, yes. And in another experience, um, you know, we did some interesting studies in uh, when I, in I was in my psychology graduate program with two-point discrimination, yeah. which is, you know, how uh, close two different contact points can be before you can tell, uh, or how far away can they be before you can tell it's two different things. Like if yeah. you get up the two points of a compass, you know, really close together and you t- touch somebody's uh, skin, you know, it may feel like one point until you get a certain distance away. And then you can clearly tell it's two separate discrete points. And the two point discrimination is really small on, for example, the tip of your finger. Right. Um, but it's much larger on your back. Um, it's a lot harder to tell those things on your back than it is on something like your finger. So this comes into play as we think about, you know, when people have pain in certain areas, um, Uh You know, maybe that um, significant what's happening in, in some in some areas is might need a different type or or focus of their intervention because that uh, sensitivity is not quite as extensive as it might be in another place like the hand, the fingers, the face, or one of those other areas highly represented by that that. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna take a little branch off of your thought your thought tree you're developing there. I like what you're saying. Uh, but two-point discrimination is really fascinating. You could look at this sensory homunculus as a map of two-point discrimination, and it does correlate pretty well. Yeah. The bigger mm-hmm. areas on this map 
have smaller measures of discrimination. Like you said, on your fingertip, you can tell when things are really close together. Mm-hmm. Your, you know, your fingertip's huge in your brain. On your back, it has to be pretty far apart before you can tell you got two points and not just one. And yeah. the back is really small in the brain. So then in pain, it's it's pretty well established that when you have pain, counterintuitively, your two-point discrimination measures go up. It gets mm-hmm. less refined. You, ha- you need a much bigger distance between two points to even tell it's two points. Yeah. Even though you're more sensitized and more sensitive, you can't tell what you're feeling. It feels like, you know, one thing, even if it's two, until it gets really far apart. Yeah. And that has some other implications, too. I did some very unofficial experiments from time to time when I was looking at the use of pressure tools mm. for people who are saying, like, I need to find a way to not, you know, burn my thumbs out all the time. And, you know, yes. looking at some of this, the That's different pressure tools that were out there. And I did some, yeah. you know, experiments with multiple clients saying like tell me when this is a thumb and tell me when this is the pressure tool that i'm using in there and, and clearly when you're working on somebody's back it's a lot harder for them to tell a difference between those uh, types of things so this is a great uh thing that says you know you can use a lot of different tools and get the same type of effect in many instances without feeling like you're having to burn out the use of your your hands and thumbs and fingers sometimes <laughs> you're saying why why burn out our thumbs on an area they're not feeling that acutely that's anyway. right yeah. Let's do an efficiency. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Break out the screwdriver. Yeah. <laughs> Something. Well, yeah. yeah, it's so the two point discrimination thing is interesting because, yeah, people have a larger uh, distance, less discrimination. They can't tell if it's a tool or your thumb. If they're in pain, yeah, they can't, they get less refined. Yeah. So it stands to reason in my mind that, re, that refining perception will help with pain tolerance. Yeah. Right. Now, I, it turns out I've looked hard. There's, there's, there haven't been those studies very, you know, that have been definitive to say, yeah, if we get someone really getting better at two point discrimination, does their pain get better? We know that it gets bigger when it, we have pain. We don't know that we can make it smaller when they're, you know, with training and practice. You can get better at two point discrimination. Does that make pain better? In my experience, yes, because I often will have people report on the table what they're feeling or describe it to me, and I'll work around the edges of their zones where they have that shift in discrimination. And we get a pretty clear change in the location of that zone where they can feel accurately and where they can't. Yeah. But are there studies that validate that? There aren't yet that I know yeah. of. So as we talk about that thing about you know, discriminating uh, differences between some of these zones, you had mentioned something in our, our notes here too, talking about smudging. Um, yes. Tell me about that, about cortical smudging. And, cortical and smudging is the same, similar idea that the, the map in the brain gets uh, smudged. You can imagine like a charcoal drawing getting smudged or a, a, a picture being out of focus. When there's pain, that map is out of focus. And so there's blurring, you could say, between more areas, maybe one finger hurts at first and then it spreads out into the neighboring finger like that map gets blurred. And it's uh, this is, you know, the uh, Butler and Mosley use this idea, the explain pain folks. A lot of people have done that. That idea has been around for at least a decade, maybe more. It's a useful map. It, it, it probably doesn't have uh, as clear a correlation to what's actually happening in the brain as we would wish. There is, there's more evidence that it happens in a motor sense that you get when you have a disability or motor impairment that that, that motor map gets smudged or blurred so that more parts of the body get involved, more parts of the brain rather get involved in trying to move that part of the body. 
Yeah. And again, this is somewhat anecdotal, but um, I think we can see um, similarities oftentimes with many chronic pain patients who have greater difficulty specifying exactly where something hurts. They'll just say like, it just, it hurts all over. It's all oh, through yeah. this whole area. And, right. uh, and that seems to be, I think oftentimes indicative of, of the, co- the cortical smudging in there. Um, and that's, I was curious about this. Concept because, yeah. Well, I, I'm jumping in. It's so useful because then I can, I can really, as a mental map, at least, Never mind the research for a second. As a mental map, I can really work to help my client feel that more accurately, which is counterintuitive. If people if something hurts, people don't want to feel it and they want you just to make it stop hurting. And we often want to. But if we take time to actually have them describe the pain, exactly where it hurts and where the pain stops, and actually work with touch to help someone really get clear on that in a pleasant, non-noxious way, that shifts the pain experience so much. It, it diminishes its unpleasantness for sure. Often its intensity as well. Absolutely. And that's exactly where I was going with this, because I think this is something I don't know that we have seen uh, research do yet, but there has been suggestion that some of the very specific soft tissue manipulation strategies might have a benefit in sharpening that cortical map and decreasing the degree of cortical smudging in there. And like you said, it may seem counterintuitive that people would want to be specifically honing in on those sensations. But there's a good reason that a lot of times people say, no, just get in there and work that thing just that particular way, because there is a a desire, an innate desire to try to feel like something's being done to it and sort of cleaning things up to some degree. And so uh, I think that's a real significant benefit of highly specialized and specific soft tissue manipulation work. You're scratching that little man's itch. In a way, yeah, uh-huh. by giving some tactile stimulation to those places that are distressed, yeah. So I can totally see that. And mm-hmm. this, I mean, um, the, the, I think we should put in the disclaimer here that it's not just about stimulating any sensation there, because you can stimulate sensation just by poking something, or just by sure. like you said, yep. like you're joking, get out your screwdriver. Yeah. You know, it's actually recoloring. It's a different kind of sensation. It's it's more refined, so it's more exacting. It's a smaller brush. And yep. it's a different color. If the pain could be visualized as being red or orange, and by the way, pain is not orange or red, despite what all the clip art pictures show. Yeah. Uh, but if whatever it is, whatever color it is in your client's imagination, to actually shift that hue, to shift that color tone a little bit, can be really remarkable too in terms of the intensity, pleasantness thing. Can I say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it turns out that this uh, these parts of the brain which are located up in the parietal lobe. You know, these parts of the brain that are S1, M1, the, the primary places that are mapped out in Penfield's map. They What they map mostly is intensity. Mm-hmm. They map the intensity of experience, not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That happens somewhere else. That's more anterior cingulate cortex, more the insula, because that pleasant, unpleasant uh, uh, valence has a kind of emotional quality or a, a reactive or an evaluative quality. And that's a different part of the brain than just gets a pure somatic sensation. Yeah. Which is fascinating because pain has both, huh? Pain has mm-hmm. some intensity and it has, a, do I like it or do I not like it? Yeah. And this is one of the key things that I think makes so much of what we do very difficult to study and duplicate in research contexts because so much of the benefits of 
the interaction that happens is about that quality that you're talking about that's tapping into those areas because uh, you know you can massage for example is not something that you can just say con is consistently applied between five different practitioners if they're all taught to do the same thing even oh, um, yeah. the way in which they contact touch the body and interact with that individual has absolutely a huge amount to do with the way that perception or that uh, treatment is received and perceived by the individual so uh, we're not like a you know an ultrasound machine that you can test and say this actually has this right. kind of effect because right. So much of it is is dependent on who the individual is and how it's how it's conveyed. Well, a lot of the studies trying to tease out the mechanisms do need, by definition, need to get really precise in their mechanical measurements. So they'll have robot arms or very careful measurements of pressure and direction and speed and such. Yeah, but this pleasantness, unpleasantness, valence that the rest of your brain is doing. Uh, is influenced by so many things other than those mechanical factors. It is all the contextual factors. It is who you are. It's what's happened before, what you think is yeah. going to happen after. It's all those things coming into it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. th this is an interesting footnote here. There was a uh, study of pain and THC a while back that actually revealed an interesting effect of, in this case, THC around pain. THC seemed to have a significant effect on pleasantness, unpleasantness, but not in this one study, a significant effect on intensity. So yeah, weird, but it hurt just as much, but it didn't bother you half as much. In other words. Uh -huh. I'm sure we could get lots of uh, discussions about what the amount of THC you have that influences, whether or not that bothered you a whole lot. <laughs> but it's an interesting, yeah, whether you could take that one study literally, and there's been other studies that didn't replicate that, but that's an interesting yeah. uh, concept too. That, that It is. Touch, yeah. Our touch might yeah. do that. Our, much, our touch might change the color, not necessarily mm -hmm. the intensity of the color. You know, when we can, when we can, we want to change the intensity of the color. We want to turn down that pain intensity. And yeah. it's out that so many manual therapy things can do that. They can just erase the pain or diminish it down to such a small percentage that it's not even a bother. But when we can't, then often the plan B is, well, let's work on changing the color then. Let's work on changing the pleasantness, unpleasant yeah. ratio. So I want to take just a very quick little diversion because this is a huge, big topic, but I just want to touch on this as we're talking about it. Um, you know, we're, we're making a lot of references to things that make are therapeutic interventions more or less successful with our clients? And a lot of these things having to do less with um, the exact way by which we manipulate soft tissue and a lot more to do with mm -hmm. persona, being, conversation, discussion, or whatever. Um, and yet we don't have, in my opinion, uh, a lot of consistency or even really skill buildup in our training programs about how to teach people to do this well. Um, and uh, I just wonder, like, how do we get there? How do we get to the place of really teaching those people? And I'll, I think a lot of it is those subtleties and fine points that get taught to you in continuing education later on after your initial training. But I'd love to to look at how we can better focus on those kinds of skills in our in our in all of our training programs, regardless of the disciplines. Well, I I defer to you, but I also digress. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we do a better job of teaching it than we realize. I think we could do much better. Mm -hmm. And you're you're much more familiar with, say, the training, um, you know, and schools and curriculum environment than I am. So I, that's why I that's why I defer to your sense yeah. of that. 
But I'd say, just to argue the other side of the equation, we actually do a decent job because all of the soft skills that get taught and all of the inductive skills that get taught through modeling and practice are what we're talking about here. They're the thing yeah. do shift someone's pleasantness, unpleasantness, valence for their sensation in a way. It isn't just like the right angle and the right technique and the right duration and the right soap noting. And it's not just all the technical aspects, which are also essential. Yeah. How do you create a, a cohesive, transformative experience for your client? And I think yeah. there's schools that are teaching that effectively. I see some pretty darn practitioners coming out of our system. And that's yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I think you're you're really I I probably am a bit more critical of this than um, uh, because I'm always trying to look at how do we do it better and I realize that there are significant gaps uh, in this and yeah. and I do I do see a lot of people coming to our uh, continuing education experiences that I feel like are highly deficient in their um, initial education and I think um, there's just a lot of gaps in places that we could improve there but I I, I do think you're right that that there is a good bit of focus throughout different um, facets of the subspecialty areas within our manual therapy fields that do put a lot of attention on this. Um, it's just, it's it's much more difficult, for example, to create uh, training module models and methods that focus on these things as opposed to saying like, we've got to cover the nervous system in our anatomy and physiology class. It's That's just, right. so um, true. So true. yeah, much, much more challenging to do it's that. It's not so. as clear as, as yeah. how to teach it, especially how yeah. to break it down and make it consistent, which I know is a value you hold as well, is how yeah. do we, how do we uh, make it standardized enough that it can be, have a certain skill level and standard that goes across our field, that is a much more difficult proposition. Yeah. Because historically, in our field, as well as others, so much of that comes through, like I said, the modeling pieces, this, the transmission or induction process where you get uh, indoctrinated essentially into a kind of a viewpoint that, for better or worse, gives you a certain way of working, a certain style that mm -hmm. is either proven effective or proven, in the worst case, of course, limiting. Yeah. And that is uh, inherently the benefit of working with m mentors and other individuals who have yeah. a lot more clinical and life experience, both of being able to recognize some of those subtleties and fine points of how you uh, do those kinds of things. And, and sometimes it's really, yeah. really small things in the communication of just the way that you make eye contact or the way that you, um, you know, uh, listen and have an empathic, caring attitude towards somebody that really, really makes the big difference there. You've made, named a couple of really important ones. I'm just thinking in our in our trainings, we have like these little notebooks with a page for every technique. It's got a mm -hmm. picture of the page. It's got the description. It's really clear. People love it. They can take their notes. I got that technique. We don't have that for all those skills you just mentioned. We don't have like eye yeah. contact on one page, turn the page, right. the stink scale on the next. Yeah. Those are much harder to chart out in that linear way. But maybe there's there's certainly in the learning phase, uh, there's a place for that as well. Yeah. There's been some yeah. work around that as well. Right. So what else um, have we not touched on here in terms of clinical applications or anything else that you can think of? That, yeah, uh, a couple more trivia pieces. And then yeah, mm -hmm. for sure, some of the limitations involved. Uh, turns out left-right visual recognition of your of body parts is influenced by pain. And this is probably related to the sensory motor homunculus. That if you see a picture, let's say you let's say your wrist hurts, you see a picture of a hand, your ability to say accurately, is that a right hand or a left hand, is measurably different if you have pain in your own wrist. Mm -hmm. 
And there's some interesting software put out again by the Noe group and the explain pain people to play on this. They show you like flashcard, like pictures of a hand and you got to really quickly tap the button. Is that a right hand or a left hand? The, ha the hand that you have more pain in is going to be a slower time. You can see it right on their app. Huh? Interesting. Bizarre. Yeah. And with yeah. practice, you can actually increase your time. You can get better at recognizing right hand, left hand differences. And they show you all different kinds of angles and hands doing different things. So that left-right net recognition measure is like the two-point discrimination one, where it does seem to be tied to brain function in a strange way that when we uh, reverse engineer it, when we get better at recognition, the pain seems to get better as well. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So uh, lots of places of uh, thinking about how we apply these concepts to our more traditional training methods and, and things that we've been doing to enhance our effectiveness. And, and, and I think maybe sometimes help explain why sometimes things worked and why sometimes they didn't work with, with certain people, because there's, there's a lot more going on here than just um, what we tend to see with the, the physical manipulation of the soft tissue for there's sure. There's a whole lot more going on. And I just, I'm just thinking like there's a role for letting my clients watch what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say, put your head down, you know, I'm working with your foot, just feel it. Yeah. And part of that came from the alignment idea that we want the body to be in a in that, in that state of alignment that I was trying to induce. But anymore, I'm saying, yeah, watch what I'm doing. Cause you like the mirror box idea, you get so much out of the visual input as well as the tactile input, you're remapping the brain with that. Yeah. So, and then, and well, I mean, just one more piece of trivia, your brain is inflamed. Those parts of your brain are inflamed in chronic pain. There's there's a difference in inflammatory activity of the glial cells in people who have sciatic pain in their brain, in that sciatic region of their brain. So it's not just processing. There's a different physiology going on in the brain there as well. Yeah. Which has lots of implications too. So you mentioned to a moment ago that there may be, we've talked a little bit about this, but what are some of those other limitations of our little man homunculus or other things that we'd want to keep in mind clinically yeah, about this? The big one is Korzybski's idea that the map is not the territory. Mm -hmm. that it's yeah. so easy to get wrapped up in the literalness of any map we use and forget that that's not, it's just a map of something else, that something else is what counts. And like I said, Penfield himself was saying, this is just a doodle in page 37 of my study. It's not the way the body works. It's just a conceptualization. So it's it's important to keep that in mind. And, you know, like just down to the level of like on this 2D map that you'll see a lot of the man stretched upside down over the brain or a body stretch over the brain, those body correlations are pretty approximate and are overlapping. So the big, a lot was made a few years ago of the genitals saying being next to the big toes on this map. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not even going to try to explain that, but there's, you know, a lot of places you could go with that idea. Yeah. Well, it turns out it's probably not literally the case anyway in spite of all the interesting experimentation that might engender. But you know, it's, it's true for the rest of the body too. You don't uh, want to get too wrapped up in like, oh, the body, this is this part of the brain, which I think is probably related to what you were saying about reflexology and these other maps too. Yeah, because we could see uh, the coming on of all kinds of different uh, reflexology systems <laughs> as a result of that. Well, there probably uh, are. There probably are. Yeah. And they probably are effective for various mechanisms, you know. There's been a, it's been really hard to tease out the effectiveness of modalities, even though we can tear apart their mechanisms. Yeah. So the 3D map, though, that the sculpture you'll sometimes three or a picture of a man in distorted sense, that's that's more accurate than the 2D 
guy stretched across the brain, just because it's got proportions. The proportions seem to be reasonably accurate in Pinfield's map. There is a whole lot more brain dedicated to the hands and the and the mouth, say, than there is to the back. Yeah. We've been talking predominantly about uh, this from the standpoint of the client's perceptual sense, too. But I just want to also call attention to the idea that, you know, there's another big reason that uh, we want to really pay a lot of attention to what we feel with our hands uh, as we're doing the various different types of approaches. As since we are manual therapists, um, there's a lot that we can refine in that whole palpatory sense and the conveying of, of certain types of things as you're trying to access a particular deep structure somehow. That's right. Lots of things that come into this with with the level of uh, sensory complexity from, from our hands uh, in the work that we're doing. That's so true. And then the yeah. ways we use our hand or the parts of our hands we're used to using are probably more refined and developed in our own brains. And so I yeah. see this all the time in, in trainings. People have to try to use their hand a different way. It feels really weird. Your brain just hasn't shaped itself into that pattern yet. But yeah. with practice, you know, like maybe it's that two-week thing. With practice, you get so that you can feel just as sensitively with a different part of your hand than you're used to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, what um, we were talking about, you know, people having to learn to do different types of work sometimes because let's say, uh, you know, their wrist hurts, their fingers hurt, their thumb hurts or something. They've overused something. They have to try to learn how to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can certainly, uh, that whole idea, we can expand into much different ways of working and, and methods that will still be able to give us some degree of, of uh, sensitivity in there, but it might take some time. It might yeah. take some time to really work through it. Maybe, maybe fascia isn't as plastic yeah. as we thought it was 20 years ago, but the brain is a whole lot more plastic than we even realized. It's changing all yeah. the time. Yeah. Which gets us back to your statement from our uh, episode many episodes ago about perhaps the most important tissue that we're working on is the one between the ears. So I like that again. So there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another, uh, tool in that toolbox, another episode. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Indeed. That's what I got. What do you think? Yeah. I think that's, that's a pretty good, uh, dust up of, uh, the little man. I think in some applications, uh, thoughts and ideas about uh, how he relates to what we're doing. So um, we'll see where that takes us uh, and, and see what we hear from other folks uh, about that and, and uh, see where we want to take it from further discussion somewhere down the road as well. Lots more to talk about. Lots of interesting implications. I look forward yeah. to hearing back from people. Yeah. Uh, so our wrap-up sponsor today is Handspring Publishing. And when I was, thanks to them, because when I was writing a book, I was looking for a publisher. It's a big search for a new author like me. And they were interested. They gave me an offer. I got another offer from a much bigger multinational conglomerate, media conglomerate. And I ended up going with Handspring's offer because they really were helping me write the book I want to write. And I'm glad I did because their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written, especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness, as they say. And Handspring has a new instructional webinar series called Move to Learn, which is a regular series of 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors, including a recent one from Till. Uh, So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. So thank you very much, uh, Handspring and our other sponsors for the podcast as well. 
So I uh, also would like to say a big thank you to all the listeners who have continued to um, uh, take on uh, downloading the podcast, listening to it. We're getting close to, I think, Till, you told me the other day, getting close to 50,000 downloads. Passed, or, yeah, we passed that, uh, Mark. We Like McDonald's, we have a sign now we can put up. That's right. 50,000 yeah. downloads. <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. So so stop by our sites for show notes, uh, handout transcripts, and the extras over there. Um, you can find stuff over at uh, for, on my site at theacademyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can people find out stuff from you there as well? Advanced-trainings.com. Advanced-trainings.com. Let us know your questions about the episode, things you'd like to hear us talk about. You can email us both at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com. Or look for us on social media. I'm at my name, Till Luca. How about you, Whitney? And I can be found on social also by my name uh, as well, Whitney Lowe. And you can follow us on Spotify. Rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you happen to be listening. And uh, please share the news. Tell a friend. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll dive into some more other interesting topics here again. Thank you, Whitney. That sounds good. We'll see you again in two weeks. <laughs>